Good afternoon and welcome to the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by Supernet. I'm Joe Dworsky, the president of retail banking for Supernet, which is the only payment network that enables true credit solutions for the cannabis industry, both for merchants and consumers. Each week, our podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. My next guest is an entrepreneur, investor, and corporate dealmaker with more than a decade of experience building and scaling businesses personally and professionally. A multi-state cannabis license holder, Sarah has a proven track record of identifying new opportunities and infusing traditional business strategies into progressive markets. Entering the cannabis industry in its infancy helped pave the foundation for her future success, building several other ancillary businesses in the cannabis industry. And after eight years of building and scaling these businesses, Sarah successfully exited and sold these businesses to a larger publicly traded company. Currently, Sarah is leading the charge as CEO of the Cannabis Business Advisor, CB Advisors, a multifaceted international consulting firm for the cannabis industry. She has been recognized as one of the top 20 women to dominate the international cannabis space. Please welcome to today's show, Sarah Gullickson. Sarah, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. My pleasure, and uh, I'm sure our listeners are looking forward to it as well. Well, congrats on an impressive resume of success over the years. But before we jump into what you're currently doing at CB Advisors, I always find it interesting, and I'd like to take a step back to talk about your early days in business and what was the catalyst for you entering the cannabis world. Wow. (laughs) It's taking me way back. It's funny. I was just uh, chatting with a friend that was in the industry when we all just kind of started. So, you know, I've told the story a bunch of times. I really just fell into the cannabis industry. Um, I had a small marketing agencies for spas, salons, health facilities, and I helped a lot of, um, you know, people with just their social media and marketing. And back when cannabis was legalizing in Arizona, there was an ad about, you know, marketing for back then we called it pot company. I grew up in a naturopathic household and thought, you know, hey, why not? It'd be another gig. I didn't realize, you know, the journey I was about to take when I said yes to a small marketing retainer. Bought the business, built the business, sold the business, and have been a part of the industry, I think, for 13, 14 years now. So much different today than it was back then in every single, you know, area, but it's been an amazing journey. It sounds like, yeah, an amazing short journey thus far. I mean, uh, in your in your young career, uh, and obviously you got you got the right springboard, uh, and that's led to where you are today. Can you share with our listeners um, with the mission of CB Advisors and the areas of expertise? Talk a little bit about you know what CB Advisors is doing today in in the industry. Yeah. So when I sold my first firm you know, back in 2018, and I became the CEO of a publicly traded company, I kind of thought that that's where I wanted to be. And I ended up, you know, having a family in that process. And 
it turns out I just really, really love to be an on my feet, fast thinking entrepreneur. And so we created CB Advisors after my uh, non-compete was up. And I started it with my uh, right hand that I had had for a while. She became the director of licensing. So she specializes in requests for application, requests for proposal, whether that's a dry state, you know, turning into a med state or a med state turning into a recreational state or a state simply expanding. We really specialize in merit-based, limited license, competitive bids. That's where I think that we shine the most. And then I work really just on our special projects. So we have a lot of investors that will take ownership in their projects and help put them into, you know, the right deals that make sense for them, either licenses that are currently functioning that are looking to their owners are looking to exit or just kind of low hanging fruit in the industry where we think that there's a trend that there'll be a low number of applicants to be able to go in there and either put in, you know, some lottery balls or, you know, a merit-based application. So the focus in terms of the number of states currently, uh, and obviously Ohio being the latest one to enter the, the recreational space, uh, do you have a geographic focus or is it really um, agnostic across the United States? We don't do a ton of work in unlimited license markets. It just really doesn't pencil for us. I think that a lot of you know, local talents there. And so we don't work a lot on the request for proposal or request for application in like Colorado or California. I'll jump in and help people with operations if they need it. But we keep the firm, the firm really boutique-y. So we work with people that we like that have the same kind of, you know, business ideals that we do um, and morals and, and values for the industry. Um, and that that's a cool place to be because we get to work with, you know, people that we think are pretty cool. Well, that's good. You know, be in control of your own destiny and, you know, decide who you want to work with uh, and having that ability is great. Are there any specific verticals that you focus on or are you, is it sector agnostic within the cannabis uh, industry? For the RFP and RFA work, we'll we'll work in any type of license type. Now there's like 17 license types from transportation, wholesale, distribution, cultivation. So we can... You know, we have IP or intellectual property for all of those different license types. And then as far as operations go, I'll advise um, and the firm will advise on most license types, but we're not specialized. We don't specialize in like growing. So if somebody's like, I really need help with growing, we have partners in our network that know growing and processing intimately where we work more on like the business side of things, helping them draft the standard operating procedures helping them get JV deals um, and really fleshing out what their three-year, five-year, and 10-year plan is if they're not exiting before then. Okay. That's interesting. And, you know, I think earlier you mentioned, you know, investors, you know, you're helping your investors in this direction or that direction. When you say investors, are these people that are looking to invest into the space and, or these are existing clients in cannabis looking to expand? So sometimes we won't have clients in a certain jurisdiction. And so I'll put a project together where I'll take ownership and then I'll call on either my investors that are already in the industry or mm-hmm. I have investors that are not in the industry to help fund the acquisition of the license. And so it's really all over the map. Or I have like different investment groups that just go out and get licenses and then flip them over to some of the MSOs or multi-state operators. So again, that's why I just like definitely carve myself out as an entrepreneur because you know, every single day is different. Every single client's different. Every single partnership's different. 
it's just, we're, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is, you know, expand the industry, grow the industry and get licenses into the hands of capable and competent people. I agree with that. So with that being said, which, which markets are you the most active in doing some of my research? And I see that you recently opened or are opening in in New York City, a, a dispensary. Is that correct? So New York is a very interesting market. <laughs> My hometown. <laughs> so we won a card license, which is like their own special special terminology for like a social equity license. And then there was a big lawsuit that basically rescinded all card licenses. So we're in the process of working through that lawsuit because that was one of my personal licenses. So we're not sure what the fate of the card licenses will be. But to add complexity to the state, since that's what they love to do, they open their application window for normal licensing. It's open right now. And that goes for the next like month in a couple days or so. And so we're preparing a ton of applications there for clients, I have a couple that will go in and we're really building a lot of projects there. This is the first market that I'm maybe not 100% sold on, <laughs> right. but I think it's just because there's so many idiosyncrasies when you're dealing with New York. And we've really been through the ringer, um, putting card applications in, getting a license only to you know be about to open to have that license like rescinded. So it's been an interesting journey. So we are working heavily in New York, even though it's um, complex. Let's say uh, we're working heavily in New Jersey, both on you know getting licenses and helping people open their licenses. We just opened client list for Ohio. We'll be working with some folks that are interested in snagging a dispensary license and or a cultivation license. We just wrapped in Missouri. Before that, we were in Illinois. Uh, Maryland's active right now. So, you know, the in the past, it was like you were hyper-focused on one state and now it's, you know, you're working in up to 10 states at some time. So mm-hmm. we have a team that really just kind of tracks what's going on, what application windows are open. And then we're obviously actively selecting clients there as well as partners and or investors depending on the project. Right. And you mentioned in New York, you know, you had or issued a card license. Can you talk about the different licenses? You know, maybe our listeners might not be aware of of what a card license is versus, you know, a general license. Can you just, you know, share a little bit about that? In addition to there being like different license types, back in the day, people that had a marijuana license would, you know, cultivate their own marijuana, process their own marijuana, and then obviously dispense their own marijuana. And now that the industry has expanded, not only of the license types, meaning now people are wholesaling product, other people are transporting product. The license types have changed. The classifications for licenses have also changed. So, you know, about seven years ago and, you know, 10, seven to 10 years ago, you know, the conversation was all about minority, minority, minority. We need more women in the industry. We need more, you know, different backgrounds in the industry. And so there were a certain amount of licenses that were given to people that met that criterion. And since then, the industry has evolved one step further 
where, you know, a lot of people were obviously wronged by cannabis criminalization and now people are making money on cannabis. So, you know, that didn't sit well with a lot of the states. So they have their own programming. Some of the states, not all of the states have their own programming carved out and it's social equity. So it's people that were, you know, grew up in poverty centers and or people that have been convicted for cannabis criminalization, basically. So card licenses in New York fell under cannabis criminalization, and they specifically wanted people, you know, that met their criterion for so- social equity or card licensing. It's it's really interchangeable okay. in terminology. It's just, you know, a matter of a definition, right? Okay. Um, so they wanted people that had been wronged by cannabis criminalization to open businesses in New York, um, but now they don't. So it's changed. Okay, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of the obstacles in New York. I was I was reading and I was I saw on the news, speaking to some friends since I moved down here, that with the dispensaries opening, they're seeing you know increased crime because of the cash component. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you know the other states have experienced that, but it was highlighted in the in the New York market. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of, you know, the cash component in your practice? Have you seen in other states, you know, uh, the cash component offering a a level of risk to the the cannabis owner and, you know, what potential solutions that we're working on, how a credit card could basically change the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's obviously like, you know, one of the biggest myths of the industry and obviously one of the biggest obstacles as well. So, you know, everybody back in the day thinks that everybody is printing money and cash is under mattresses. And obviously that's not the case anymore because the industry's evolved a bit. In other states, like literally specifically carving out New York, the way that our standard operating procedures have to be written and the protocols and policies around cash management, you have to do so many different things and have like such high level of security and potentially even sally ports where people are driving into your building, closing the door, picking up the cash, picking up the product. And so I would say that a lot of the regulations and the regulatory complexities around cash management are very fleshed out in a lot of different states' legislation. We're in New York, when you're seeing these headlines, you know, obviously the media loves to take a headline like that and run with it to say that the industry is, you know, corrupt or bad or whatever. New York doesn't really have a lot of those parameters. That coupled with the fact that there are so many illegal stores currently functioning as quote unquote licensed dispensaries in New York, it's just a breeding ground for bad news, right? You know, I would say that obviously cash, you know, cashless management would be the ultimate ticket to the industry because it would just make things, you know, a million times easier and safer and things like that. But most of the states have a lot of protocols or legislation and rules and regulations in effect to create a safer environment in the dispensary. But New York's just, again, it's just kind of wild west over there. Recently, I think last week, the week before, you obviously you saw the Ohio market, you know, past recreational. What kind of potential do you see in Ohio for adult use uh, with it now being legal? Do you foresee a different rollout in Ohio compared to how New York had their rollout? Oh, absolutely. So Ohio, you know, Ohio's. I've been working in Ohio, I would say, hmm, maybe seven years now. So 
Ohio was an older program that's now evolving, right? It took them a while to go recreational. You know, traditionally now states are flipping from med to rec in about two years. And their recreational initiative didn't really, you know, it just, it didn't get off the ground right away. So now that it's finally passed, Ohio's actually given out licenses more than once, which is not common for a state that's that's limited license medical only. Usually they give out more licenses when things go recreational. So now we'll see their third round of licenses being given, which is super exciting. They have a healthy population. They have a great program. They have great operators. Um, and now they're just going to be able to expand to meet the supply and demand of obviously what will happen when things go recreational, which is you know a larger user base. Let me ask you this, you know, from my knowledge as well, you know, you hear about these states, you know, they pass legislation, whether it's recreational or for medicinal purposes, and then you hear everybody trying to jump in and, and win a license. How do they determine the number of licenses that would be issued in a particular state? Is that driven by, you know, geographic, the size, the population? Can you share a little bit how that works? Yeah, every state is different, as you can imagine. <laughs> just because obviously we're not federally mandated yet. And so every state uses, typically they'll use a framework that they already have in place, whether it's congressional districts, community health analysis areas, counties, but all of the the factoring in of like those areas and how many are in each region that will win licenses all derives from population. I shouldn't say all, but I should say most derives from population. And then that basically goes into how many licenses they put in each area, just, you know, literally down to, you know, maybe 20 or 30,000 population discrepancy. So most states already have this framework for other things that they're doing. For example, in Arizona, they use the pharmacy framework and it it worked for them. And so there was a certain amount of dispensaries that went in per number of pharmacies that were in the area, but the pharmacy number comes directly from the population. So you're right in saying that does it come from the population? Yes. Okay. That's interesting. You know, but with a pharmacy, you know, like, a, you know, you see a Walgreens on every corner, I would imagine that can be challenging to a degree with having a dispensary on every corner, if you will, from the perspective of trying to be profitable, the profitability of these dispensaries. Can you talk a little bit about that since you do, you know, obviously the uh, the consulting on the business side? I hear a lot of, you know, talk out there that, you know, it's not as glamorous and profitable as people thought it may be when they first entered the market. You know, some reasons, you know, have to do with, you know, the individual state uh, tax structure and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about the you know the profitability of these dispensaries and uh, where you see this going in terms of a federal legislation that might level out the field on how taxes are levied? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a loaded question because there's so many different factors that play into this. Um, so just off the top of my head, you know, I prefer limited license markets because. These businesses are a heavy lift. Not only do they take an extreme amount of capital to get off the ground, but they take an extreme amount of capital and profitability to remain off the ground. So in markets that there is a cap on licensing like Arizona versus no cap on licensing like Colorado, where you're talking about seeing a dispensary on every single corner, 
you know, Colorado and California, it's dog eat dog. People are going out of business, you know, every, every day, right? And it's because the amount of money that they have to spend in marketing is just absurd. That matched with the like pricing of marijuana in the sense that, you know, in some markets, when they're first getting off the ground, you'll buy a pound of wholesale cannabis for, you know, let's call it $2,200 to $3,000. Once a market matures and you have local operators that know what they're doing, you know, that are able to meet the supply and demand, that number can go down to $800 a pound. So there's so many different factors and it's almost like you watch this little roller coaster ride within each state at any given point in their journey from dry to medical to recreational and when licenses are given more. So you use the example of Ohio and Ohio is a great example of what's going to happen. You know, their pricing was high because they were medical. There was only a limited amount of cultivators, a limited amount of processors and a limited amount of dispensaries that were actually selling. So they can almost control their pricing. Well, now what's going to happen is they're going to open it up to a recreational market, market, which is much different than a medical market. They're going to have supply and demand issues, even with them issuing more licenses. And so what's going to happen is that price is going to obviously go up a bit. They're going to have a hard time keeping product in the stores if the you know, people that are operating there aren't stockpiling and able to meet that market, which by now they should be able to, but easier said than done. And then what's going to happen is the second wave of cultivators is going to get off the ground and they're going to level the playing field again. And then pricing is going to go back to, you know, a, a medium point of probably about, you know, 2,200 a pound. So it's really, it's really interesting to study because I've been in the industry long enough and I know 13, 14 years doesn't sound like a long time, but in our industry, it, it's a very long time. So you can almost see this little scenario play out in each state depending on what they're, what point they're at in this like, so quote unquote, roller coaster ride. It sounds like if somebody's looking to get into the business, if you will, they really need to understand the framework, if you will, of that particular state in terms of the licensing. You know, I mean, yeah. it sounds, it sounds like you'd rather be opening in a limited license, you know, state versus, you know, an open license state. Do you advise clients when if someone's coming to you and they say, hey, you know, Sarah, we, we want to, you know, open a dispensary in, you know, Colorado. You know, we just moved here. I mean, do you actually tell your clients I, I wouldn't do that? I mean, given the saturation of the market, you know, the economics, you know, how do you well, advise clients in that environment? Yeah, it really boils down to like how much money you have and what your like end game is, right? Would I put a client into Colorado when they just moved there and they know nothing about cannabis? Absolutely not. It's too, it's too dog eat dog. They'd have so much trouble being a ma and pa, like, you know, small fish, big pond kind of a thing, right? Limited license market where the program's not up and running yet or hasn't gone recreational yet. If they're a local person in a local state with good local ties, you can still run a nice, profitable mon pa one location business. I don't know how long that's going to be the trend in the industry in the sense mm -hmm. that we're seeing so much consolidation. And in some markets, unless you have the buying power to go in and open six stores, seven stores, eight stores to really be able to use your infrastructure across multiple outlets, as well as your marketing dollar to get your brand out so that people come to you. In some of the markets, it simply doesn't make sense anymore. And that's actually not a limited license market 
or an unlimited license market conversation anymore. It's just an evolving the industry where now national brands are what people have seen in other states they've gone to and they want that again. You know what I mean? Right. So whether that's the experience or like meaning from a dispensary standpoint, or if that's from like a product standpoint. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing a, we've seen a consolidation over, I would say the last, you know, seven to 10 years, but it's just happening more and more where sometimes if I go out and win licenses and then we decide to, you know, get rid of them or flip them or get them in the hands of somebody else, that that conversation goes into play where it's like we could open this one license by ourselves or we could save ourselves the headache and get it into the hands of a chain or somebody locally mm-hmm. that wants to open multi-units to have that mom and pa feel in a multiple location situation or give it to one of the multi-state operators that's a national brand that's known, you know, in multiple states kind of a thing. Okay, so it seems like the direction seems to be moving towards multiple locations, you know, six, seven, eight to MSOs. And maybe there will be a roll up down the road when once there's federal legislation uh, across the board, you, you might have a massive roll up by these MSOs of these smaller six or so operators. Yep. Yeah. And we're seeing, you know, private companies do that really well as well. You know, so they might not be they're like still in the race, if that makes sense. So there's Mm -hmm. still local brands that are doing really amazing local things, but they're multi-location. Okay. That makes sense. What are your views on the recent legislation uh, to reschedule marijuana from schedule one to schedule three? And how do you see this impacting the industry? It's a weird conversation. I know everybody's gung-ho about it and maybe I should be too, I haven't done a lot of lobbying on a federal level, I would say, for the last five to seven years. I think that if we can get some, you know, banking carved out and if we can get like, you know, get that part figured out, I don't know how much else we need as far as interference goes from the feds. You know, I think that my example that I always use is, you know, unless they make this thing like a free for all, which I really can't envision. I think that it's really difficult when you're in a state and there's a lot of stacking of legislation. So you have your municipality legislation, then you have your state legislation, and then to try and mastermind federal legislation that could potentially sit on top of the industry. It just seems like a bit of a nightmare. I don't know. And I also don't know how much just, you know, changing the schedules of, of, of cannabis would, you know, free us up. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little torn on the whole conversation. Do we need help in the banking area? Yes. As you've pointed out that everybody, I mean, I think that's for me, that's like the number one thing I think we should be focused on. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we were close with safe banking at the end of last year. We'll have to see how that plays out going forward. Uh, Obviously there are a number of banks that are banking cannabis there are you know i think almost 500 banks that have cannabis banking programs of some nature they just don't necessarily publicize if you will yeah so, it just tends to be really expensive i mean there's local banks here that they wanted to charge me like $2500 a month and i'm like a teeny ancillary business i don't even touch the plan in our that's crazy consulting firm so you know, that that's the hard part where it's like you're already getting killed on legal fees and all these little idiosyncrasies that the industry obviously offers up for you because it's new. Mm-hmm. 
And then to have huge banking fees on top of that, you know, the myth of us printing money and this being like more lucrative than everybody, you know, it's not as lucrative as everybody thinks it is, I guess. It's still a business. You know, you still have to get into the profit center. You still have to, you know, have bills that you have to pay and stuff. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I hope you I hope you found a banking relationship that wasn't going to charge you that crazy uh, crazy number at the end of the day because there are a number out there. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, uh, let me just take a shift. You know, uh, as we you know get close to wrapping up the call, I think everything that we've talked about is you know uh, a plethora of knowledge, and and that's both for myself and our listeners, and and uh, we thank you for that. But. One area that I always like to delve in is, you know, people's success. How did they get here? Okay. And what obstacles, you know, have they encountered along the way? Now, obviously, you know, you're very young, uh, both, you know, in, in your years as well as in the industry, but you've had a lot of success at a very, you know, uh, early uh, stage of your career. Can you share with our listeners that path to success, the obstacles that you have had to overcome, and how much of your success would you say is attributable to timing versus luck? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, the way that I describe getting into the industry is I was not the smartest, but I think I was the fastest. <laughs> and maybe I didn't do everything as thought out in the beginning as some of my peers did that were much more experienced in business than I was. But, you know, I really attribute my success personally to how much I wanted it. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to make a name for myself. I wanted to build this industry. And, you know, I think that my goals for the industry came from like a really innocent and naive place. And as I got further into the industry, you know, maybe, maybe I was, I didn't pick the right poison, so to speak. But you know, for me, it was dedication. It was hardcore dedication where I didn't do a lot of, you know, social things in my twenties because I was building a business and, you know, I didn't do what my peers did every weekend because I was traveling for work. So you know, dedication, and I, I, dedication, yeah. and hard work. You yeah. you were dedicated, blood, sweat, to, and tears, to making this work. Yep, and I think that luck maybe played a little. I mean, I I don't know if luck played a little bit into it. Like really, honestly, you know, I think that my journey, once I understood what it was, was strategic decision making and being in the right place at the right time. In the sense that I chose to be there. <laughs> okay, good. So you controlled your, your fate to a degree, if you will. Yeah. Okay, but you knew what you wanted. You knew and you worked towards that goal. And that that's a great, you know, uh, inspiration for for any entrepreneur. I know you have a focus uh, on women entrepreneurs as well. Uh, you know, like you said, you know, you, you claim that you weren't the smartest you know, out there, but you worked the hardest, you were the most dedicated and the persistence, not giving up, you know, got you to where you're at. And I think that's a very important message for people to understand because there are a lot of people in all walks of life that feel that, oh, well, I'm not smart enough, but it's really not, you know, there are a lot of people who've gone to Harvard and, you know, Yale and they never worked hard, so they didn't amount to much. And there are people that, you know, were self-made and just didn't give up and and they, you know, made that success. So I think that's a great inspiration to, you know, many entrepreneurs out there. And I, th I thank you for that. 
I'm going to wrap up with one other question, you know, going from success to failure. What was your biggest failure in business and what did you take away from that failure, that lesson, if you will, to help you to where you got today? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, in my journey as an entrepreneur and somebody that, you know, wasn't super seasoned in business and was just kind of like learning along the way, I've had a lot of failure in the sense that, you know, especially that match with the fact that like we win for a living. That's literally what we do. We win bids for clients or for ourselves in order to get the opportunity to open a cannabis license or have a cannabis license. And so, you know, sometimes you pick the wrong clients or sometimes you make mistakes, you know, and you think the legislation should be this way or the rules and regulations like interpret this way. And so, I mean, I have, I have so many failures and, you know, the reason I point that out is not just to be like, oh gosh, I'm a loser. It's to be like, you know, if <laughs> it's high risk, high reward. If you're an entrepreneur and you are in the cannabis industry and you tell me you have zero failures, like I would literally laugh in your face. So, you know, I don't have one that like specifically stands out, but yeah, we've, we've messed up bids. Clients have messed up, sure. we've lost licenses. Um, and that's just the name of the game, right? And it's the name of the game, not only in a competitive bid, but in, in, in life. Um, Absolutely. You know, I actually thank my failures because my failures have led me to this point today. You know, I would say maybe my journey as a CEO is a failure in the sense that I didn't, I decided I didn't want to do it. I didn't like it. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be, you know, a, an entrepreneur, not mm-hmm. having to do reports and focus on a hundred people like staffing and all that stuff. I wanted to have a small team and navigate in the way that I felt like navigating. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That, that's great. No, that, yeah. that's, that's uh, very informative and, you know, failure is important in, in the, in the journey to success. Failure is important. Super. You know, a- every CEO, every entrepreneur, every person in business encounters failure. And I think young entrepreneurs, and, and, you know, and, and young college grads getting into the real world need to understand that and yeah. just young kids in general, because, you know, yeah, I've seen a lot of young kids that are so hard on themselves, you know, when it comes to failure. And I think learning from failure makes you a stronger person. And, you know, and there are so many stories in, in failure that have led to success. I mean, that could be a whole two hour conversation. Uh, but this has been great, Sarah. I really appreciate uh, you taking time out of your busy day to spend the 30 minutes with us talking about uh, what you're doing, um, you know, at CB uh, Advisors and, you know, sharing your successes with everybody on today's show. If people would like to reach out to you, if there are any of our listeners that are looking to get into the, the industry or maybe in the industry, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you? Uh, SarahGullickson.com is my personal website. That's easier to type in than the CannabisBusinessAdvisors.com. So pick your poison, Google me. I'll pop up in a bunch of different ways. Feel free to, you know, shoot me a message on LinkedIn, Instagram, or on our websites. Okay. Terrific. I thank you for that. Well, thanks everybody for listening to uh, Freedom to Buy's podcast this afternoon presented each week by Supernet. You can learn more uh, about our payment network uh, by visiting our website at supernet.ai. You can listen to today's show as well as past episodes of Freedom to Buy at Cannabis Radio, 
Com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please join us next week to learn more about your freedom to buy. Thank you and have a great afternoon.